Okay. Jessica, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Good. So uh, before you came in, I was sitting here with my back to the door, and I heard the footsteps. I haven't gotten your footsteps down yet, but we just got this new flooring in the office, as you know. And I think by the end of 2021, I'm going to try to figure out everybody's cadence. You know, I, I, I think that uh, certain ladies in the office uh, have a stronger cadence. And I don't know if it's because of uh, the type A personalities that we have around here or if it's just people that are nervous. But I got to tell you that I'm sitting in my office and I hear that clunk, 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 clunk. And depending on how loud it is, I start like my shoulders up to my neck and I'm like, okay, what, what kind of problem is coming through my door right now? Most of the time it's not. They don't even come to my door. They're just checking their mail or something like that. But uh, yours was kind of soft. I, I was surprised. I used to do ballet, so maybe that's what it is. I okay. the dancers walk. <laughs> okay. So um, here we are in the holidays. You know, COVID is around. Uh, you got any plans that are going to be fun or different than your years previous? We're just going to make them honest, like 200 of them tomorrow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's good. It's like a assembly line situation. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I think with COVID, we need to do something to get the spirit back up because it's a little down, but... That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it and eating it, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, I was thinking as a as a parent, we try to relive our childhood through our kids. And you always think, you know, when I was on Christmas, I either did or didn't do this, but I want my kid to experience that, you know. Um, you know, and this time around, I hear a lot of parents saying that, you know, they feel like their kids are missing out. In fact, I, actually, my daughter, who's now 27 years of age, recently said that, uh, she f- wants this COVID thing to be done before she leaves her 20s, you know, because she's missing out on so much. You know, um, how do you feel about that? You know, it's funny. My daughter in the beginning, I have a five-year-old. She absolutely hated it. She's like, Mom, I want to go to Disneyland because we used to have season passes. So we were there all the time. I want to go to Sky Zone. I want to go to the park. And at first, like everything was shut down. And she was going a little stir crazy just being home. And she's like, I hate COVID. And I just thought it was so funny because even at their young age, they like have a grasp of it. They know it's interfering with their everyday life. But we've tried to make it special for her. You know, we went to the Grove. Luckily, the Grove is still open. They still put up their big tree. And it's not quite the same, but I try to foster the Christmas spirit because it's really important to me. My parents raised me with like, I have really fond memories from childhood of Christmas and I want to make sure I transcend and make those. So we had the gingerbread contest here at the office and I actually helped her help me make it. I was going to talk to you about that. I'm yeah. glad you're bringing this up. So you were one of the three awesome people that participated in that contest. And <laughs> was that your daughter that helped you with that? It is. So we have a tradition every year. We make a gingerbread house. But this year, we didn't actually get a kit. We actually made it from scratch. And it was so much harder <laughs> than I had anticipated. But it was fun. It was a good bonding experience. And it's just memories that I'm making with her. So now she like knows. And she even asked, like, before I bought the gingerbread house or I bought the stuff to make it, she's like, Mom, we're going to make the gingerbread house today. Like, I remember we did it last year. Like, when we go get our tree, we're going to decorate it. So it, it makes an impact. They remember. When you say you made it from scratch, that sounds very hairy because we did one. Uh, we just got back from Florida, and Mar- Maria, my wife, uh, got one for one of her relatives, and it was a ready-made one. And, and apparently the talk was how to get that house to be stable. Uh, from scratch, I would think that you'd have some problems with that. It was so hard because it kept falling apart, and it fell apart like three times. And I was like, okay, this is the last time. If it doesn't stay, we're just going to go buy one of those kits. And thank God, fourth time was a charm because it ended up staying in place. But I literally had to reinforce it with like a box inside and like smush it uh, to make it stay in place overnight before I could even touch it to start decorating. Okay, so there's some tricks to the trade here. Tricks to the trade. Very interesting. You know, I, I think about... Uh, you know, parenting a lot, you know, because that's the business that we're in with regard to clients that have custody. 
you know, and we talk about, of course, you know, kids missing out on maybe some special days, you know, that or the experiences that we may want them to have. Hopefully this is just going to be short term and, you know, they won't even think about it as they, gr- they grow up. Uh, but there's a lot of parents that don't have a lot of contact with their kids. You know, um, maybe they're the secondary parent and they miss out on seeing a kid ride their kid, ride a bike for the first time, uh, things like that, you know, and I just think, uh, the spirit of the holiday. I hope that a lot of the parents out there are co-parenting more than we, we normally see. I mean, we see a lot of cases where there's so much acrimony that, you know, one parent doesn't get to experience a lot of that. And I think the child misses out too. A hundred percent. And it always comes down to the child. I mean, I'm in a co-parenting relationship myself. And I think that with our daughter being the focus, that's how we make it work. Because at the end of the day, she comes first and that's how it should be. And unfortunately, some parents don't have that same mindset. But the, the clients that I have, I try to guide them down that path because I know ultimately it makes better results with the kids than having this back and forth. I always tell parents, you know, this case is going to be done in a year or two years, but you're stuck being parents until this child's 18. So you guys get, need to get along, get it together. The sooner the better because it's going to still be there even after this case is over. Even beyond 18. I mean, you know, kids have weddings. They... There's a there's college. And they have kids. Yeah, the grandkids come yeah. to play. Yeah. So you get you got to make a lifetime commitment. I think, you know, and we uh, we hope that our clients get that message, you know. So I know you do a good job of that. I I listen to you talking to the clients, and I see your emails and everything. You're always the reasonable person talking to them about, you know, doing what's right for the kids. It means less attorney's fees too. It's like a win-win situation because yeah. we can keep things calm. It's one less thing we have to worry about. Absolutely. So. Shifting topics. Today, we're going to talk about a case called Marriage of Hine, and I asked you to join us because you're a brainiac, and uh, I really think that uh, this may be the most important case of the year. Every year, I give an end-of-the-year presentation, and I go through, say, 20 cases that I think are notable, and I always try to pluck out one or two that I think, hey, we got to spend some time on this because it's important. And I'm going to call this, and correct me if I'm wrong because, you know, you probably read this more recent and more thoroughly than I did. But I think that this is the big win for people that need child support. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it broadens the amount of income available for child support because obviously we know the distant master is based on you know each party's gross income. And by reducing the amount of deductions they can take, it may, gives them more money that they'd be paying child support from. Yeah, yeah. So Marriage of Hine uh, has two key uh, parts to it that I remember from reading. One of them is going to be uh, depreciation for businesses, uh, and the other one is going to be the burden of proof. Who's got the burden of proof with respect to the cash flow available for the business owner, you know, the payer of support? So why don't you set up the case for us, and then we'll kind of dissect it. So basically what happens is this couple, this is a post-judgment uh, modification for support filed by the wife. And, and her name was? Jessica. Jessica. I figured you would kind of key in on that. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, she was a physical therapist. She made pretty good money, about $9,000 a month. Her ex-husband was a rancher, I guess, that had like corporations that managed various farms. And she basically filed a modification of child support and asked for attorney's fees based on, you know, an upward modification of income and husband's income. Well, when it came to it, he was basically arguing that he should, or I guess the trial court level, they found that he could deduct some of his depreciation of the equipment and vehicles that he was using for his corporation. And that basically lowered the amount of gross monthly income that got calculated per the DISO master. Okay, let's stop there for a little bit. So uh, in the past, 
people got away with that because there's a presumption, uh, there was thought to be a presumption of a marriage of low that tax returns are presumptively correct. And so if somebody's depreciating their business uh, expenses for depreciation, uh, the family courts throughout California were saying, hey, that's fair, right? Right. I guess the IRS has their own like form that when you fill out the tax preparer to deduct certain expenses, you should just correlate directly to those in the family law case when you run the DISO master. And it was just kind of done without question, not really looking into what these deductions were. They were just presumptively correct because the IRS had used them as well. Okay. Continue. So basically, wife says, I don't think that's right, essentially, and files an appeal. And at the appellate level, the court agrees with her. And they say, I think they actually did a really good job. I don't think the case law was quite clear prior to this case as to what is appropriately deducted as a depreciation. And they go into a lot of detail about how only those where the actual income spouse is paying money out, they call it an outlay and expenditure, then it can be deducted. But if it's like a phantom deduction, then you can't really claim it as a loss of income. And I actually, I don't know if your take on this is the same, but I don't know if it would have had the same outcome if it was a spouse support case because the the court makes it really clear that the child support priority of maintaining the children is of utmost importance. And I just wonder, would it be, would it, they have ruled differently if it was a spousal support case as a ch- opposed to a child support case? It's a case? good question. It definitely wasn't a question of spousal support. So we can't cite this case for spousal support cases, but we might say that it's influential and, I, and I'm sure that's going to be tested sometime in the future. Uh, so, you know, prior to this decision, uh, there was another decision that stated that you can't depre- you can't deduct from the gross income for the purpose of cash flow uh, rental income right or it was depreciation it rent- depreciation of the properties right so if somebody owns a an apartment complex in Glendale California and he's got to pay support and on his tax returns he gets this big depreciation for the the building right uh, prior case law said can't do it right? right but there was this thought in California that that was only for properties. It didn't apply to regular businesses. So when we're talking about businesses now, because of this decision, we're talking about equipment outlays, right? And I think they actually mentioned another case um, where it was a, it was a motor vehicle, but the attorney was also u- claiming <laughs> the vehicle <laughs> like depreciation. like a Bentley or something. <laughs> and for depreciation. Right. And the court basically said the vehicle is not directly tied to you being a solo practitioner attorney, so you can't claim that as a related business expense depreciation. So I don't know if that's the distinction there as well, because that's basically what they said here. The equipment that husband and Hein was using wasn't necessarily related directly to his business. Well, I think, yeah, the the depreciation mark on the tax returns doesn't interfere with his ability to run his business and the cash flow is the same, right? You know, so uh, let's say that there's a, an accountant and in his, uh, business, the accountant has computers and has uh, other, you know, telephones and things like that. And I don't know if you could d- deduct those as depreciation or whatever. Uh, but it, it seems like from this case that every business, whether it's a restaurant, uh, a professional office, uh, you know, whatever it is, if it's equipment, we're going to be looking at adding that back onto income. Right, because they're not actually paying that out. It's a phantom loss of income, okay. so to speak. And that could be, what do you think about the results of that? How's that going to impact child support? 
it, it obviously raised the number of child support in this case. I mean, they remanded it back to the trial court to have them rerun the DISO master, but they said, instructed the trial court to add in all of that extra income. And I think in this case, it was significant. It was between seven hundred and nine hundred thousand dollars that was getting getting back added into income for purposes of support. Yeah, this guy's tax return showed that he was earning a meager amount of money, even though he owned a ranch and several corporations, and you know he had lots of employees, and you know he, he's kind of a big cat, and he does the uh, you know the, the tax return in such a way that it looks like he's barely making it. But when you start putting back that equipment to this man, you know you're talking about seven hundred thousand dollars or more. That will have a, a big impact on child support, right? Yeah. Okay. So the second part of this is equally outstanding, in my view, and it had to deal with the burden of proof. Can you talk about that? So the trial court originally said that the burden was on wife to prove that the tax returns were not correct, that all the depreciation that husband had claimed were incorrect or improper. And what was that based off of? The prior um, marriage of low, right? Right. The reading basically that tax returns are presumptively correct, and so the appellate court said no. They said that the burden lied on the husband because he and his accountant had greater familiarity with his businesses and the way the tax returns were drafted. That it places basically an undue burden on wife, who doesn't have the intricate knowledge of how this was prepared, to go ahead and prove that they were wrong. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And then the decision went through, uh, to great pains to explain why that would happen. And it talked about some factors that the court has to consider when sh- determining who's got the burden. And not just in these type of cases, but in general. Um, one of the things that I recall the court talking about is uh, who's got the information and who's got, you know, who, who has accessibility to these things. You know, and a greater access to it, I guess, is what it said, right? Was that one of the factors? It was. I think it comes back to the fact that, you know, the cost associated with wife having to conduct extensive discovery, whether it's, you know, demand for production or depositions of the accountant, depositions of, you know, whoever was running the business for the, the husband, it would place such an undue burden on her to have to go through all those measures just to get the information that husband already has at his disposal easily. So, so there should be like a huge impact on discovery in family law cases. And we're talking about self-employed people. And a significant portion of our caseload deals with uh, clients that have you know, small businesses. You know, we call them closely held businesses where you have a business owner. It seems like uh, it's going to impact discovery, don't you think? Of course, because then they have to be more thorough if it's going to be requiring to basically provide all the backup documents that do all these deductions, that do all the depreciation schedules. So yeah. you, you have to, if, if it's something where they're claiming significant depreciation, like $700,000, one would tailor the demand to ensure that you get all the backup documents and you understand exactly line by line what those depreciations are, and that way you can vet them to see whether or not they're proper. Yeah, and I would think that if you're representing the business owner, you know, you have a, an extra duty now. You know, you can't, even if there's no discovery propounded, if you're preparing for trial, you got to be prepared to prove this, right? So I, I think it really takes a lot of uh, uh, mystique out of the process of determining what a cash flow analysis should be, right? Because if the burden is on the person that has the, uh, the equipment and the business and stuff, you don't even have to propound discovery in some respects. If you can go to trial, you can go, prove it up, dude, you know? 
or a good deposition of, of the guy, you know, or gal who owns the business, you know, you could say, now, now how is that uh, Bentley really impacting your restaurant business, you know, and stuff? Yeah, very interesting. Um, what do you think about uh, your comments to clients going forward with regard to this decision? What kind of client do I have? Do I have the business owner client or do I have the outspouse? Let's start with the business owner. The business owner, I definitely would want to work more closely in conjunction with whoever his accountant is so that all the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted. We make sure that all the depreciations are actual depreciations that are valid in the family law court because, as you mentioned, now there is a divergence between what's appropriate with the IRS Internal Revenue Code and that form they can fill out for depreciation schedule as opposed to what classifies as a depreciation in the family law court. And I would explain to them that your tax return may say you make X, but once we add in all these extra things for purposes of support, the DISO master is going to be, you know, based on you earning X plus Y plus Z plus whatever. And just let them know, give them the heads up. And also, just like I said, work closely with their forensic to make sure that we can prove it up. And we're prepared for, you know, whether it's a report, whether it's their testimony, whatever it may be, that we're ready for trial so that we can be rock solid on that. Yeah, each and every item. So you have to go through it with them and say, what are your thoughts? How do you use this piece of equipment for your business? And how does this impact the cash flow? You know, that's that's going to be an important process. I think that also, it may uh, encourage settlement more. Absolutely, because yeah. I realize it's going to be so much more expensive. You know, as you know, as soon as we get a forensic accountant involved, then it's not just communicating with your attorney, it's communicating with them, you're paying both retainers, it ends up being more costly and someone may just say you know what let's just throw out a ballpark number and see if that works yeah and that ballpark number might be a lot less than if you go to trial absolutely right it tends to be with settlement anyways yeah yeah that's very interesting yeah so you know i'm thinking that um you know this is a good day for recipients of child support what do you think absolutely it takes off a lot of the burden off them and it provides more income available for support which means child support will tend to be higher Okay. Now, why do, why do you think, I don't know if you think this or not, but why would a court of appeal differ with respect to spousal support if we're talking about cash flow available for support and burden approved? Based on the opinion, it seems like they really harped on the fact that the priority of child support is to maintain the child. And we know that just in public policy, they play of utmost importance on child support in general. And I don't know if they would have ruled necessarily the same with spouse support. I'm not sure if they would have taken the same considerations because part of the reasoning why they go ahead and add in the extra income is because it's to benefit the child. What about to benefit the ex-wife or ex-husband? I don't know if the court would have ruled the same, to be completely honest. I don't see the same sentiment being carried across. Yeah, I I think you're saying that because we see in a lot of cases there is a distinction between child support and spousal support as the way things are done. Um, So it is a question that's out there. I'm going to throw. I'm going to put myself out there. I think eventually we'll see a decision that says it applies to spousal support as well. It would make sense for consistency purposes that yeah. it applied the same way. I think that the only way they could distinguish it is to basically say that child support is for the maintenance and support of the child, whereas spouse support is supposed to be a supplement to either you know on a temporary basis to either get keep them at the marital standard of living pending resolution of the case. And then there should be a termination date at some point that they need to make efforts to become self-supporting. Oh, great argument, counsel. But let me let me counter that by saying that, yeah, but when we even start with the spousal support question, we have to know what the true cash flow available for support is. And uh, we've got to start 
with honesty, right? So who knows? I mean, that, that's probably going to be the argument that you'll see up on appeal, you know, eventually. Yeah, so um, the spousal support obligation is, is a question. We don't want to uh, lead anybody astray here and say that this decision, you know, is going to impact that one way or the other because we don't know. Uh, the other thing is, is that I think that the court has still has some discretion here. Uh, the way that I read it is, is that the court has to look at this, but there's still uh, discretion in the court, and the court of appeals not going to overturn it if it's a factual question, right, or a question of credibility. Yeah, I, I agree with. You. I mean, I think that that's the case across the board, though. Too, there is discretion that's allowed for the trial court to determine a, issue of fact, and this is not. Basically, they're saying, here's the law. Here's what we deem an expenditure. Here's what we deem a depreciation. You determine whether or not it's something that falls within the necessity of the business being run. That's not a question that necessarily is being answered in this court case. It's up to the trial court to determine whether that piece of equipment, that vehicle, et cetera, is necessarily to the running of the business. Yeah. And that's going to be on a fact-by-case you know, case case basis. Yeah. It, then, then the final analysis is that the court really, the trial court really hammered the the wife. You know, it says, "Look, you know, uh, I, I, was there no spousal support ordered in this case?" I don't recall what the spousal support issue, but it was it was, was low or none, and then no attorneys' fees. I know no that attorneys' part. fees because there was no disparity in income, and I thought that was the craziest thing of all because even with his reduced earnings, or even just looking at his gross receipts, I think he was making like four million dollars. A year. And he owned all that property. And he owned all that property. And she only had $9,000 a month, which is not a menial amount. But when you compare $4 million to 9000 it, it clearly makes a difference. You would think that there would have been some attorney's fees. So, but, but what the Court of Appeal did in this case, if I'm, if I'm right, is it remanded it or it vacated the attorney fees order, which essentially, I think, remands it back and says, okay, now reconsider, look at, reconsider this. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Jessica, this was wonderful. Um, I, I think that this really is the case that I'm going to highlight this year. It's, uh, it's going to be impactful. And uh, 2021 20, uh, is going to be interesting as we start implementing this. I agree with you. I'm interested to see what they do if, they, if there's a case that comes down next year that does the same for spouse support. So then it's all consistent and we don't have to worry about yeah. any distinctions. Absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for joining us. I'm so happy you got to come on. It's, you know, I've been waiting to come on. And okay, well, we'll out. get you on soon. We're going to do a lot more of this. Okay, thank you. Thank you.